We are into podcast number 24. It's a Skype call, first Skype call we've done. So this might be very interesting. On the left of the line, we have uh, Chris and Mel. Chris and Mel both work for Ronin, the contract sense. Chris's day job, um, he owns Oakthorn and Ash, which is an arborist company in Winnipeg, Manitoba, in the center of good old Canada. They're also both rope access sprat level ones. They're also both rescue technicians. And Chris still teaches some helicopter insertion techniques, um, HII, for the military. So without any further ado, Chris, how you doing? Good, Mark. Uh, thanks for having myself and Mel on the show today, or podcast rather. Uh, it's good to be here. It's good to be able to, to sort of chat in a more formal form. And uh, I should clarify right off the bat, the company's called Oak, Ash, and Thorn. Oh, sh- my bad, my bad. Sorry. <laughs> it's all good. So, and what do you guys do primarily when it comes to arbor? Uh, when it comes to tree work, we've sort of found our niche in being, sort of mixing our passion. So, we do a lot of backyard work and a lot of tree climbing. So there's sort of two avenues of traditional tree work, that being bucket truck or, or sort of a cherry picker, mechanical lift, uh, mobile equipment work platform style tree work. Uh, and then the, the, the other sort of, depending on which side of the fence you sit on the more simple version, which is climbing. And so we sort of focused on that, which involves a little more math and a little more sort of fitness and physique and situational awareness, so to speak. Um, but taking our military background and mixing it with sort of uh, rope access and rope rescue, it's certainly allowed us to to carve out a niche in Winnipeg, and we do a lot of more high-end, low-impact, minimal-impact type work uh, due to that. All right, like you've just brought up some interesting points in regards to climbing. One, you said we do some math. Can you elaborate on that? A lot, a lot of rescue guys do math, so. Yeah, so math. Um, <clears throat> so I should start off by saying I – Graduated high school with a bunch of extra math credits, but I hate math more than probably most people ever will. Um, that being said, uh, I did find uh, later on in life that finding X was quite important. Uh, and the biggest thing sort of in the tree game is the amount of variables. So doing math and math being as simple as calculating mechanical advantage, figuring out the weight of potential pieces that we'll be cutting, uh, fall distances, possible forces they'll put on the system and then figuring out how to sort of manipulate what we're trying to do uh, to our advantage. So, you know, we have a tree leaning over a, a glass sunroom, you know, somebody paid a quarter million dollars for a big solarium. They don't want this tree to go through it. Well, we basically, well, we had better, I guess, get our math right uh, and pull it the opposite direction. So in basically influencing the fall of the for or the fall of the tree in the direction we need using uh, correct cutting techniques and, and mechanical advantage and, and rigging lines and such so that basically we, we using math, eliminate or reduce our potential for error. Okay. Now you, you brought up some stuff in regards to weights. And I mean, I know in the rescue world, we deal with two kilonewtons, 2.8. When we start talking about two person loads, obviously you're going to be dealing with much heavier loads than that. Just for the people listening out there, what are we talking about in regards to the size and the weight of what we're you're moving around. Oh, that, now that's a hmm, that's a hard one to answer. Okay. So the trees we take out are basically trees that homeowners or other tree companies can't take out. So that could be a really really small tree in a terrible spot that 
has a huge amount of risk for, for breaking things around it or a really huge tree in an equally terrible spot. So sometimes we're doing rigging on pieces that the piece itself probably wouldn't be any more than 15 pounds. Like certainly something that's holdable, you know, our guys just don't have three hands to do that. So they end up using ropes to tie them off. Uh, and then the opposite side of that spectrum, I think our heaviest pick to date on a single piece was about 12 and a half thousand pounds. So, oh. you know, it's, it's really, it goes pretty far left and pretty far right. So unfortunately you have to have the gear to sort of accommodate those vast differences in, uh, in equipment, just because if you use, you know, you use normal, uh, climbing gear on a, on a piece that big, you're going to blow it up very, very quickly. So that, that whole, I, hmm. I guess the easiest way to put this, and the way I like to talk to my team about it, is we all have equipment on our tool belts or on our harnesses, but the way you look at it is really up to you. So the the analogy I like to use most commonly is a hand ascender. You know, is that a hand ascender or is that a toothed rope grab with a 450-pound load that, you know, can't be shock-loaded at any time? And if you see it as the latter more long, or I guess more ton of applications that you normally wouldn't and so by mixing the gear and mixing our our rigging solutions we're able to therefore do these sort of more uh, wide variety jobs so larger loads lighter loads and moving those around horizontally as well as just vertically sort of in a more traditional treeway okay that's really interesting when you're talking about the gear and how you're using it a bit differently now let's push right into gear you guys single rope double rope when you're climbing trees, what are you using? Um, <clears throat> we're using two points of connection. Uh, it really depends on the tree. It's hard to say whether you're going to use one, two, or no ropes. So, yeah, it's it. I mean, every situation is different. It's basically rope access, so you can take that sort of horizontal, limited uh, limited anchor point, but need to be able to access the whole workspace sort of mentality. And then you mix that with a lot of heavy load rigging. And so therefore, sort of taking those two very different challenges, it forces you to be quite um, quite creative in the rope solutions you're using to both work position yourself safely to do the work, but also to allow the rigging to maneuver safely around your, your work positioning. Okay. So it's a lot of, you know, SRT, like single rope stuff, some DRT, like dual rope, uh, and then... Uh, just regular work positioning, so belt and spur type climbing, uh, and then tons of redirect. So the way you want to manipulate that system to sort of put the force in the right direction, it kind of anywhere a rope can go and, and any way you can tie it up is certainly something that we're willing to take advantage of to, uh, to accomplish our work, certainly. Okay, you brought up three things I want to chat about. Uh, definition of SRT for people out there that are true rescuers and have never heard that term before. So SRT is single rope technique or stationary rope technique, depending on sort of which way or whatever you want to call it. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's where the rope isn't moving. So in uh, an MRS or MRT sort of rope climbing system where the rope moves, uh, rescue guys would consider that like a single self counterbalance closing circuit type climb. We consider that MRS climbing. Okay. It involves a single rope. Uh, however, in that system, the rope is moving. In an SRT system, the rope is stationary. So it's basically ascending and descending a rappel line or a fixed line, similar to rope access, except it's only on one line. So you have one point of attachment, 
most typically that will be a friction hip hitch of some uh, some sort instead of in rope access where that would be something like a rig or an ID. So single device, you can ascend, descend on, uh, obviously using a variety of ascenders uh, to sort of support the ascent on an SRT line. But other than that, it's SRT, single point of attachment, single line, allows you to move around the canopy as if you're on rappel. And then per best practices and ANSI standards when actually making a cut, you simply put on a work positioning lanyard as well, make your cut, then you remove that extra lanyard and you're back. Uh, ultimately, you're just back on rappel and you're free to move about the canopy. Yeah, are you running rope wrenches or are you running devices that rescuers would be familiar with? <laughs> um. Well, it depends who's doing the rescue. It's definitely <laughs> certainly not stuff that me, my guys. That way, if somebody not me. <laughs> um, yeah, we're running rope wrenches for sure. That's not super common to a non-rope guy uh, or a non-tree guy. We also have things called a unisender. One of our guys uses yeah. that. We have a newest thing uh, out of Rock Exotica called the Akimbo. So, How is that? Uh, it's I don't. Know, we really like it actually. We, uh, or Mel anyway, my wife and, and business partner, she found it online quite a few years ago when uh, the gentleman was just creating it. And so she was interested in that and, and got the prototype version of that. And lo and behold, a couple of years later, Rock Exotica has obviously partnered with them and, and come out with quite a, an interesting device that, you know, if used correctly, and if you read the owner's manual, can, couldn't say that enough. If, uh, if you use it properly, it's, it's a very interesting device and allows you to do uh, single rope and dual rope type climbing uh, using a single sort of, I want to say, uh, Petzl inspired device in the way that it can be attached to uh, to you as the climber and you don't need to drop it to install it and uninstall it on the rope. So unlike a lot of tree climbing devices where there's small bits and pieces that you can certainly drop out of the tree. So you sort of need to assemble them on the ground at the base of the tree before you start your ascent with this device. If for whatever reason you happen to get onto the rope halfway up the tree, it's very simple to install as long as the rope isn't under tension. Okay. Um, the rope itself, 10 and a half, 11, 12, 13, 14, what kind of size rope? And what um, what's the rope construction for your SRT or dual rope or whatever you're running? Um, so again, it uh, depending on the climbing technique, it allows us to use a variety of different sizes. So if you know if we're going to footlock our way up on dual strand like really really super traditional stuff like no equipment at all uh kind of like winter time stock climbing where you're trying to stay warm you can use a really skinny rope like a nine and a half or any basically any single line um occasionally we'll climb big fat ropes as well if the guys just want the sort of the security of feeling it but anything from about nine and a half to uh, I think our biggest climbing line is 12 and a half, might be 12.7, but the most, the most traditional climbing line for our work is 11.7 mil, which I've never really been able to figure out as to why that is, but uh, it seems to be the most common, though unlike, uh, I'd say rock, uh, rock climbing ropes, they're more specific, where a 10.5 is a 10.5 is a 10.5. I think in tree work, an 11.7 is to one company is often 11.5 to another company. So understanding those differences, I found in tree work is certainly a lot more um, important, maybe, than it has been in, in the rock world or in the rescue world, where those standards seem to be much more closely adhered to. 
it's funny though because I believe the Cordage Institute allows you a half inch either direction. Um, it might be a half inch total, so 0.25 either. I can't remember exactly. I'd have to look it up, but that includes rescue ropes as well. So it's interesting that you found them to be a little tighter in the rescue community than they are in the uh, ARB community. Oh, I definitely, I definitely think so. And it's not just the types of construction like current mantle versus, you know, different types of braids, uh, which obviously will sort of give a, a looser profile or, or give a more narrow profile under load. Uh, I think just overall the, or at least I feel that I've found personally overall, there's more uh, variance, so to say, in the rope construction in the tree world. Okay, now, sorry, Mel, were you saying something there? Nope, that's just me moving the table. Um, now, construction-wise, is you dealing with nylon, nylon, polys? Are you dealing with more of an aramid? Are you dealing with a steel core? What do you, like you mentioned, your lanyard when you're making chainsaw cuts with the ANSI standards. Can you give me some... Uh, explanations on some of those devices or some of those products um yeah we're not using a lot of steel core lanyards some of our guys have had them in the past but their application or, or the their usefulness i suppose maybe in, in just the size of the trees that we're climbing here like a traditional flip line it really is designed for huge massive bc style trees like out where you guys live where uh, you wouldn't be able to, while standing on spurs, flip a traditional sort of current mantle rope all the way around the tree and be able to sort of advance it up the tree. Uh, whereas inserting that steel core to the inside of the rope allows that wave action to carry around the wider diameter tree, thereby allowing a climber to climb something that's maybe five or six meters in diameter. Uh, so because we don't have such large trees here, that's not really a problem. And most of the time our guys can reach around the backside and sort of manipulate their, their lanyards over top of nubs and, and little things that might get in their way. Okay. So, but again, that's something that has to do with smaller trees. Uh, another sort of, I want to say just mental thing that, that I found some people in the tree industry have is they have a sense of security with, uh, with their steel strop lanyards saying that they're safer to use around their chainsaws and you know it's obviously guys that just haven't watched videos of chainsaws hitting you know tension steel cables because they'll certainly explode just as quickly as anything else uh, but again it's it's where that knowledge of non-knowledge is power and also knowing what you don't know is you know ultimately is the same thing that's really it's you know it's like airborne right it's you, you teach you teach out the fear by showing them why it works uh, and unfortunately, the opposite of that is true, and it just breeds a, an, an incompetent confidence, which is uh, terrifying if you own a business. Fair enough. And I mean, my personal experience with arborists and steel is it's tough to rescue. I've had to pull a dead arborist out of a tree in the past, and he was on three lines, all steel cord. And it, it, it made for some difficult rescuing. <laughs> I believe it, and, and I'm glad you brought, you brought that up. So it's one of the things, another one of the, the many things that we've sort of instilled at Oak, Ash, and Thorn uh, is just that the climber is responsible for making sure that they are rescuable in some way. So generally, we run a base tie system, especially with our SRTs, uh, where the end of the line is in some way secured to the base of the tree, whether that's on a munter or through a figure eight, you know, if there's enough of a tail there to sort of... Uh, allow for a rescue where that climber would actually be lowerable all the way to the ground and then alternatively we'll just basically like dead end the rope on the uh, on an anchor just with uh, an alpine slightly above it 
with another static line just laying there waiting to be sort of secured to that eyelet. And then they just chop the, the rope in between so that they're ultimately just on belay on a separate line. So all of that simply because if we were to install a steel system somewhere in our, in our gear, we wouldn't be able to cut it with a pole saw. And right now, if we have enough climbers up in the tree that there's a possibility that we wouldn't be able to have a climber do the rescue, then at least even our most basic trained groundie would be able to perform a, an aerial rescue of a guy or bring him safely to the ground without having him thunder like 30 feet into potentially pavement or whatever is beneath the tree. Okay, so that's interesting. So for the people that are listening to this, to give them some idea, you're basically looping a line over top of a branch. You're climbing that line. The other end of the line is fixed to the bottom of the tree, and it's either fixed on something like a munter that's releasable to lower if there's enough rope in play, or it's hard tied with a but alpine butterfly so you can break into it and lower the climber out of the tree. Yeah, that's a really precise and concise way of saying exactly what I said. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just want to make sure. Just give it a <laughs> yeah, second. No. Like, there's going to be a lot of people listening to this that are going, I mean, I've seen some of it. We've worked with Rich Hattie before. And so I've seen some of this. And I can, you know, there's going to be rescuers out there that look at this or listen to this and go, what in the heck? Um, device that you're lowering with when you break into the line, are you breaking in with an MA or are you just chopping the line and uh, loading a device that way and then lowering the climber? What are your uh, techniques? Um, it, it really depends. Most of the time that that SRT line or that, that line that will be acting as a, the base anchor here or coming down to the base anchor where it gets tied off, there will be a beaner on there somewhere. And so if we're going to be, ultimately, if they're on that beaner, if there's enough rope in play, they're on a munter or on a figure eight, and we just lower them that way. If we're going to end up chopping the line, then they'll... How do I start this? So from the Alpine, yeah. the rescue line will be attached to that Alpine with a, an auto-locking beaner. And then yes, that just line... backing another line onto it. Correct. And then that line will be muntered or figurated to that same anchor point, And then the, the difference in between will be chopped. So there might be, uh, you know, after it gets pre-tensioned, it might be a one or maybe two inch drop, you know, depending in, in how much static how much uh, stretch is, I guess, between the anchor and that alpine. So it might be two or three feet. So whatever 4% of that is, not very far. Yeah, no kidding. Um, and then are you lowering then on the munter or are you putting another device in there for your groundies to use? Yeah, it'll be on the munter. Also depends on the amount of redirects. So, you know, a climber is sort of a very static weight. Like we'll call them a one kilonewton load. So... Yeah there's not a ton of weight there to lower. So after that rope goes through a redirect or two, unless they're like really high efficiency pulleys or, or really well laid redirects, simply the rope running through the, the climber system in an SRT system. Again, the SRT rope traditionally doesn't need to move. So the climber isn't worried about this type of friction during work. Yeah. Uh, but in a rescue environment, it is something that sort of needs to be considered is how much friction are all of his redirects putting on the rope. And at times, like, well, at least when we're doing practices, we've had it to the point where we can simply lower the climber simply, like, by hand, just hand over hand, passing the line over. Obviously, there's no whistle test capacity there, but in such an environment, you really don't need a whistle test or really want a whistle test because you'd therefore be fighting it the whole time. Like, if you put in a, a prusik or you put in a rig or something to do that work with. Okay. And then alternatively, 
we'll almost always have uh, a thing called a porter wrap, which is basically like a, a huge sideways tube break used for, uh, for friction management in rigging for, for bringing down large pieces of wood. And so we'll just run our rescue line over to that and put it in the system as well. And, and it'll, it, like we can manipulate the amount of friction we put onto that rescue line by using the porter wrap, which we would, which is already installed uh, for the purpose of rigging down the wood pre sort of incident or rescue scenario. Okay. Do you muncher your mules at the bottom? That's just a question I have. Uh, yeah. Okay. A little army leaking in there, a little mountain leaking in there, I see. Now, yeah, it's, it's, minimalist is everything, right? <laughs> yeah. Now, yeah, if you're climbing double, where back to the definition, basically it's a closing, diminishing loop counterbalance, and you choke up on a line, do you have a rescue plan for that, or do you just try to avoid doing that? Um, there's a few ways to do it. If we have a spare line, my personal favorite is to basically to false crotch it. So that looks very similar to an SRT system. So uh, Define we run false that. crotch for the uh, listeners out there. So a false crotch is basically... Uh, so a fork in a tree that traditionally you think would be a good place to run your rope through if you wanted to rope ascend a tree. Uh, instead of running our DRT line through that and then choking off or, or isolating a branch to run it through, we'll just basically same thing, SRT a line over the crotch or, or through that branch uh, so that we have both ends of the line on the ground. Then we'll tie a figure eight in one end of the line, attach a pulley to that, and then uh sort of isolate the branch so to speak by putting our drt climbing system through that and then we haul that whole system into the tree on what initially looked like our srt climbing line and now we have a lowerable drt system from out of the canopy so just so the people listening understand you're basically creating a remote anchor with a pulley in the top and then running your uh drt ddrt whatever you want to terminology you want to use with that on that pulley so the entire system is droppable. Correct. So there are pros and cons to doing that, obviously. Uh, for example, the entire spar is still a no-cut zone as you have the rope running along the back side of it or the spar, the stem, the trunk, whatever you want to call it, that part of the tree. Uh, but there are some some pros as well in this, to the tune of you have a very, uh, very common friction or very standardized friction as it goes through the pulley. Yeah. Whereas when you're doing a traditional DRT or DDRT climbing system, you have variable friction on the rope because of how it's moving around the bark of the tree. So there are, are certainly pros and cons to each. But again, just like anything with work at height, uh, ultimately the operator's understanding of what they're using and how they're using it and how it works uh, will determine their safety or lack thereof. Excellent. Um, harnesses. What type of harness you guys use, girls use, when you're running tree work? Uh, I'll let Mel start on this one. I'm going to grab a drink. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. <laughs> um, right now, I'm using the Matt Cornell rope saddle. It was in production, I think, for a few years. Uh, that's an interesting one because it's made of a bunch of leather, very thick leather pads, and the actual weight-bearing part of it is 11.7 mil rope. Um, <clears throat> tied in knots in specific places and therefore made completely adjustable. So you can make it um, fit, not that you would, but you can make it fit a small child to anyone that is, you know, extremely large in size all by uh, 
you know, manipulating the, the specific knots in the rope. Um, Chris uses a Petzl Sequoia. Uh, you can speak more to that. Yeah, so I use a Sequoia, uh, and I just enjoyed, well, I mean, it's the first harness I bought as well when I started doing tree work. Uh, and I bought it because I, tra- I traditionally trusted Petzl products, and I thought they were quite decent. So without knowing too much about tree harness sort of specific things, I chose to go that route, and uh, I've been quite happy with it. It's much more minimalist sort of than Mal's harness. Uh, hers is much more sort of like the lazy boy. It has a very wide or deep hip pad. It's probably about nine inches deep, where mine might be six and maybe half as thick. So, uh, you know, sort of like like everything else, you give up some comfort things for some uh, for some other benefits. So it's much smaller. I can pack it up much smaller. Uh, it's it's not as comfortable overall. Um, and then, like Mel said, hers is tied with knots, where mine is sewn. So the the significant difference there, Mel's is adjustable, mine is not. But anything that's adjustable uh, generally doesn't come with the same rating standards, and so that's something to be uh, to be cognizant of as well. So my harness is rated for tree work. It's rated by Petzl. It comes with the Petzl brand and reputation behind it, where Mel's was developed by a gentleman named Matt Cornell who made an excellent harness i've worn it lots of times i think it's fantastic but it's tied together with knots and ropes and is very much adjustable and and user customizable and for that reason they simply can't say this harness will do its job because they have no way of guaranteeing that so therefore mel's harness because we use it in an unregulated industry which is basically trees in manitoba she can use her harness at work where if we were in BC, I'm not sure that would be the rules. Uh, and similarly, when we were or when we do uh, tree climbing competitions, Mel can't use her harness because it isn't a CSA rated harness. So there are, you know, pros and cons to, to everything. Um, and then our other guys use, we have two other full-time climbers or two other full-time tree climbers, I should say. And they use a thing called a tree motion by Teffelberger. And that thing is beautiful. Like <laughs> I have nothing bad to say about that harness. So very very comfortable has a gel pad uh very customizable that thing is completely color coded so uh unlike sort of my petzl stuff where there's some stuff that's gray some stuff that's black on that harness everything that's green is life support everything that's red is not so you know it's those are sort of the three as well i guess i should say those are also i think the three top of the line harnesses if you really were to to get into tree harnesses and look at specs so they're all quite similar in the amount of gear loops and things that they can carry which is quite impressive to be honest. Um, but they're much different from uh, say maybe a harness that you're used to in the rope rescue rope access world that has a guaranteed chest piece and is like a level three harness. Uh, a rope or a, sorry, a, an arb harness or an arb saddle will never have a chest piece that comes pre-installed. So a few of them have them, but they're not really a weighted piece. They're more of a comfort attachment or a uh, an ability to attach a chest to sender or something, some other like lanyard system to your chest versus it being used for climbing and for life support. So they're much more sort of uh, streamlined that way. And then finally, the, the other sort of major difference is we have a thing called a bridge on our rope saddles. Uh, and a bridge is basically a tie-in point that allows you to swivel left and right. And it's uh, basically if you were to take your hard point and make it span from your left leg uh, junction where that meets your harness, that hard point, to where your right leg meets your harness. 
uh, and basically put a piece of 10 mil rope between the two fixed on each end. And that becomes your new hard point so that you can swivel and spin and go upside down and do anything else you might want to do in a tree or in sort of a very uh, dynamic work environment that you might not uh, be able to do or need to do really in a rescue world. Yeah, a couple of questions or points on it. So you're basically saying it's a class two, not a class three harness, correct? Correct. That's correct. All right. And you mentioned the bridge. You do rope access as well. You, would you ever see a use for a bridge in rope access or in rope rescue? Um, yeah, so it really depends on where, simply because of the, the amount of space it needs. So in rope rescue, rope access, generally it's a lot more sort of streamlined and it's, it's a lot tighter and neater. So you know, my workspace is one device coming off of one hard point going to one line, um, where with a bridge, it sort of expands your little personal bubble to maybe like a foot in any direction. Because if you spin, you now have this sort of triangulating piece of rope, you know, on your junk, basically occupying space that really nobody else can work in. So that's one thing to sort of be cognizant of. And then I guess the, the closest thing or closest similarity would be if you use something like a Grillion and you just attached it to the same point of attachment on your uh, on your center attachment point and just use that as a lanyard, like a two points of attachment lanyard, that would ultimately sort of do the same purpose. So I don't know if you might see a value to doing that, but because it's not detachable on either side, so ultimately it's not a lanyard, uh, I... I tend to doubt it would be too, too useful in, in an industrial world. Easy enough. Um, so you've done, obviously, you're quite versed in ARB. You've been doing that full time for how long now? Uh, since 2016, February 1st, so three and a half years or so. Not super long, to be honest. And you've done some rope access. I know you've hung in the Human Rights Museum for us a couple of times. Is there tricks or is there skills that arborists have that are directly attributable to do work in rope access or rope rescue? Is there stuff you think ARB might be better at that they could teach rope access and rope rescue? Or are there other tricks that should be moved across? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a passionate, passionate believer in sort of the, the, some of the things that, that Ronan preaches. And one of them certainly is that multidiscipline the, the value of multidiscipline training, I can't stress that enough. We have a lot of guys that come from the Army that do rope access. Uh, we recently hired a guy who's looking to get into rope access and rope rescue, and he's been doing trees for quite a few years. So uh, within the industry, there's certainly a, a lot of uh, cross-pollination that way, but it isn't really, I don't know, like forced, not even forced, but isn't really assisted by the industry. It's mostly guys just wanting to sort of move on from one field of work to the other. So having seen it for some time, um, one of the things I'm sure you'll support is SRT climbing. So climbing with a foot ascender instead of simply a, a chest or a hand or a chest or body ascender, whatever like the, the traditional rope access style would be using uh, an etrier or a foot loop on a handle instead of something just tied to your foot. Oh, so, to, to interject there, if I climb over 50 feet, I go foot, knee, chest, hand now. Oh, that's a lot of ascenders. you got to remember, though, I have to stay on at least a hand and a chest because my knee and my foot aren't considered points because if I blow out of – if I go just chest, knee, foot, and I blow out of my chest, I'm hanging on my knee or my foot, which Sprat won't allow. 
Yeah, and I'll see that there's the difference is that when when we're using foot and hand descenders, traditionally there we never have a chest ascender that would go straight to a friction hitch would be which would be 100 percent. So yeah, is it, I guess that's the difference uh, on that one piece of kit. Uh, other significant things uh, that I certainly see see having employees that are, you know we I've, we've got a few that are better at trees and a few that have better rope access and seeing where they shine or don't. Um, understanding horizontal movement so that's a big thing being able to rig sideways so basically you know doing confined space but 50 feet in the air where you have nothing else above you but you can't let it go any at all you can't let it drop at all so say you have a power line there or you have another one of these magic glass gazebos that seem to be in all of our job sites so for some reason it can't go down but you have no reason or no ability to keep it up that type of stuff uh certainly sort of crosses over from confined space so so doing uh, like caterpillar rigging or, or inchworming, you know, but you're, again, you're just using this, the canopy to support. So you're sort of dragging stuff over other stuff. Okay. Uh, there's that multi, uh, one of the big things uh, sort of that I've seen assist crossover from trees to the rope access world is employing all of the potential anchors. So not just looking, you know, immediately above your, your space and, and in your 22 and a half degree offset sort of from your perfect fall line, but looking well off that. And, and you know, Ronan's really good at that, you know, seeing where can we put a high liner or, or how else can we put an anchor in this location that'll let us do task X, Y, and Z instead of simply tasks A, B, and C. So, uh, you know, th there's a lot of sort of different aspects. I'm sure you and I can agree. There's only very few things that any of us really do with rope. You know, we're pulling it, we're pushing it, we're belaying it. There's, you know, four things that we do, and that's about it. Yeah. And, and it's just how good we are at doing those things. And, and then the final part of that is how good are we at moving our bodies around a system, whether that is, you know, we have a lot of vertical place, place, but we can't go horizontally at all, or the opposite is true, or we have some, some combination thereof. The more diversified the training, uh, the, the training is or, or, or that person's experience is, the more ready they are to sort of a, a tackle any mission, whether that's cutting down a tree or rescuing an arborist out of a tree or, you know, climbing the human rights museum, whatever the, whatever the task of the day might be. There you go. So one of the last questions, a rescue company shows up, like I think fire department now shows up on a scene and there's an arborist in a tree. What are some of the things they should start looking at? Should they, completely rig separate ropes, let the arborists rescue themselves. What are your thoughts in regards to how that may, or what you could do to assist when you show up as a fire department? Um, all right, so how can we help a fire department in our rescue situation? Um, one of the biggest things, without a doubt, and I'm sure any tree company listening to this will certainly agree, is the level of training that the ground staff get. So a lot of climbing training and rescue training and, and work at height rigging, all of that type of paid training that where the employer is investing in that training is going towards the climbers and going towards the production people that ultimately will use it on a day-to-day -day basis for their job and to make that company money. But very little time and effort is put into developing uh, the ground operators. So we call them ghosts. Uh, I got that actually from Jesse over at Trilogy. Uh, Trilogy Tree Service in Winnipeg, he's an excellent climber. Uh, and the thought process there was a groundy is a reasonably degrading term to call somebody. It's just seen as a bit of a peon. 
So we call them ghosts, which stands for uh, ground operations and aerial support techs. And ultimately, we try to invest in them to sort of that same level. So our ground people know all of the rope systems and all of the rigging that our climbers are using. And therefore, you know, if we have an incident, we call you to our scene. Our ground person can say, this is the type of harness they're using. This is the type of rope they're on. This is what they're attached to. This is how this is going to work. And here's the system that we've already got employed. So thanks for showing up. Or here's what you need to do to sort of make this happen. So there isn't really one rescue sort of one rescue unicorn, so to speak, for rescue and ARB. I mean, there's, it's, it's like doing tower rescue and bucket rescue all at the same time, depending on, you know, what you're tied to and how far you're tied to it and how many points of attachment and, you know, 8 million other variables. So it's very sort of rescue-esque that way that you very much need to assess each situation when you get there. But uh, as a number one thing sort of that our companies can do to, to help themselves and help their climbers is really invest in those groundies or, or those ghosts so that they can be of assistance to the fire department to then do those jobs. The yeah. other, I, I guess the, the fire department takeaway from this um, would be sort of learn or understand the two or three systems Obviously, Vancouver Fire, having yourself on board, you guys have a, a serious step ahead compared to most uh, fire departments. But understanding the types of systems being used. So obviously, in tower rescue, everybody knows, you know, typical gear to expect a tower worker to, to be wearing. Um, but not many fire departments are aware of what types of climbing or what types of equipment an arborist might be using or the types of risks that they might be exposed to, like their ropes touching a power line that might be 50 feet away that nobody's tracking except for that arborist who knew about it the entire time until the incident happened. So, so just sort of that situation. Awareness more. level to the fire service then. Go out, That's find right. arborist companies, see what they're doing, get some general awareness about it. That's right. And, and, and I mean, there isn't, there isn't a ton of things going on. There's belt and spur climbing that everybody knows about, everybody's familiar with. Then there's moving rope systems and there's single rope systems. Uh, so there's that those two and then work positioning lanyards. So once sort of everyone's got their heads sort of wrapped around how those two types of rescue work, the rest of it, I think really we could save quite a few lives and certainly save a lot of limbs in this industry um, by sort of facilitating that conversation. Coolio, um, if people want to get hold of you directly about Arborist stuff, is there an email or a phone number that they can get you at? Yeah, for sure. Uh, our direct email is info info at oakashandthorn.ca or our uh, hotline number is 204-330-3319 and we have a 24-7 emergency service so call us anytime with any problem and somebody will pick up the phone awesome anything else you guys want to throw in here otherwise we'll uh, shut it down no we just uh i think we both just really want to say thank you for the opportunity to sort of share our experiences with arb and rescue and sort of how the two might communicate in the future or how they ought to have communicated in the past and uh you know we appreciate the, the uh, opportunity to collaborate with ronan and sort of build our our skill set and, and we feel hopefully uh add to the skill set of the ronan rescue team in case they ever do get called out to an arb site you know we might have contributed to saving a life and that's really what what we're all in this uh this shared game for awesome thanks a lot chris thanks mark